1: Greetings and welcome back to New Books Network and to New Books in History. Thanks for joining us. I'm Monica Black, your host, and I'm delighted today to have Michael D. Bailey, who is a historian and teaches at Iowa State University, uh, with us today. He's going to be talking about his very exciting new book, Fearful Spirits, Reason Follies, The Boundaries of Superstition in Late Medieval Europe. It was just published this year by Cornell University Press, and it's a terrific book. I can attest to that myself. Uh, And it will appeal to a lot of different readers. It will appeal, I think, uh, not only to those with interest in European medieval history, but also to folks of various geographic specialties who are interested in the history of magic, uh, people who are interested in the history of science and of religion, of theology, of intellectual history, and lots of other things, too. Uh, There's a long-standing tradition, or at least a tradition uh, which has has been in force, let's say, since uh, at least the 19th century, of consigning superstition to past tense as something that, quote-unquote, we've all overcome, right? And, of course, the German sociologist Max Weber, in a, in a famous lecture uh, from 1918 called Science as a Vocation, famously said, quote, the fate of our times is characterized by national, uh, excuse me, by rationalization and intellectualization and, above all, by the disenchantment of the world. Michael, I think, would say, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, Michael would say that this is the wrong way of approaching this issue, the issue of superstition and its meaning. Superstition is alive and well in our own world and our own time. And Michael's point in this very interesting book uh, is to look at what counted as superstition in the high Middle Ages, and in in this book that roughly means from 1300 to 1500, and what the consequences were of labeling a particular practice or, or idea superstitious. Michael begins the book with a very memorable and striking anecdote, and I'm going to ask him to tell you, gentle listener, about that anecdote right off the bat, because I think it's such a good way to get into the topic and into this very interesting book and to launch our discussion. So, Michael, I'm going to ask you about how you came to your topic, but first, can you tell us about that striking anecdote and how it kind of illuminates or even, you could say, frames your entire book?
0: Sure, Monica, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thanks for, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here, delighted to be able to talk a little bit about superstitions old and new. Yes. Um, so what uh, what happened was, this anecdote is that uh, years ago, as I was really just starting this project, working on it for maybe a year or so at that point, uh, seriously, I got a package, a little package in the mail. It was from my aunt. Uh, I opened it up. There was no note, no explanation of any kind, but it contained within it uh, a little plastic statue of one St. Joseph the Realtor. Right. Uh, which I later found out is a thing that you can buy in, well, you can certainly buy it online. You can get it in various religious bookstores, things like that. Uh, this is the thing that uh, a little, little icon that people will plant in their yards in various ways uh, when they need to sell their house. Right. To invoke the power of St. Joseph um, to help them sell this. Uh, it's not that I had a house. It's not anything like that that was going on at the time, but um, I don't, uh, my aunt knew I was starting to work on this topic of superstition, and she obviously, she didn't include anything to explain this, but she obviously thought this little packaged statuette uh, struck her as superstitious. And in fact, uh, when I opened it up, uh, what struck me most of all is it comes with a little instruction pamphlet printed on two sides of a piece of paper telling you how to use it. And one of the things the instruction pamphlet uh, is goes to great lengths to uh, stress is that you must not use this statuette superstitiously. Uh, you must believe properly about the power that you're going to invoke. Uh, it's... it's um, in this context, is a Christian saint, so it's the power of the Christian God, and it's not any kind of energy imbued in this little statuette itself or anything like that. Uh, they go to great lengths to say, most people bury this in their yard, uh, they do it in various ways, but it doesn't really matter how or what you do with it, it what matters uh, is that you have faith. And that is exactly the sort of structure uh, that medieval theologians, canon lawyers, inquisitors... Uh, with a, a rather differing degree of uh, uh, stringency behind it, we're telling people uh, half a millennium before uh, yeah. what makes a practice superstitious is if you understand uh, improperly what you're doing, or if you think uh, uh, improperly about the sort of power you're invoking to accomplish some end. So it really, uh, really brought home to me that you know, not only do just superstitions still exist in the sense that oh yeah, everybody knows. Uh, black cat is bad luck. don't walk under a, don't walk under a ladder, don't break a mirror, things of like this. But really even the ways at least certain organizations really think about accessing divine power, operating in the natural world, achieving real world effects, uh, how those things shade off into superstition is in some ways. There are, of course, huge differences, uh, but in some ways still very much the same. So this gets to your point that yeah, superstition really is still alive in the modern world.
1: Yeah, fascinating. That's it's wonderful. And I and I, and I, I like you. I was I was most impressed by the way that by the pa- the idea of the pamphlet and the idea of uh, that the people who, who you know the people the, the manufacturers of, of the of the little statuette were really concerned that people not misuse it's it's um not misuse it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's it's wonderful. I, I and I thought it was such a good way to to start the book. I wonder if you could now tell us tell us you know we so we, we sort of launched things a little bit differently than we would normally do in these interviews but but I thought it was such a striking anecdote, anecdote that I wanted to to get things going that way could you tell us a little bit about tell us a, uh, maybe a little bit biographically about yourself uh, whatever details you'd like to share are always interesting and then please tell us um, how you came to the topic because you've been um this is not your first book in this in in let's say broadly speaking the area of of magic and superstition I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about this particular book and its, its arguments and how how you got to that to that set of arguments and that, that set of topics.
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, you're exactly right. I've been working, broadly speaking, on magic and magical things for far longer than I care to admit. <laughs> uh, it always sends a shudder when I think just how long it's been. Um, and actually, it, it to some extent ties in with, I suppose, my at least... Academic biography. Um, I uh, I was an undergraduate at Duke University, uh, long long ago in a previous millennium, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, and uh, I was I was starting to get interested in things medieval, and I ended up uh, taking a uh, a year long uh, graduate level course, what, what, what was a graduate pro seminar. I didn't really realize what these various distinctions were at the time. Sort of covering you know covering the Middle Ages. And uh, what we were supposed to do is, in the first semester, do an annotated bibliography on some topic, and then in the second semester we were supposed to write a paper, and obviously the logical thing to do is write a paper on the topic you had researched already for your annotated bibliography. I did a bibliography on, uh, what was it, on the spread of the rule of St. Benedict Mm. in the early Middle Ages, which, Mm. uh, which, you know, no disrespect to people who study the spread of the rule of St. Benedict, I found it to be not up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided I needed to change topics and was flummoxing around. And I had just happened to pick up uh, uh, the book by Richard Keycover Magic in the Middle Ages, ah. which had just been published back then, um, a, a little survey. And most important for my purposes, it had a wonderful and highly detailed bibliography in the back. And so I thought, here is my cheat sheet. I can, I can get into the topic of medieval magic, which obviously sounded very interesting, um, and I will have my bibliography ready. So I, I started off there in that seminar. I ended up writing a uh, 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 my senior thesis in history as an undergraduate um, on a magical topic. I went to graduate school. I stayed in that area. I ended up writing my dissertation um, and first book, uh, then narrowed down to really the emergence of uh, ideas of diabolical witchcraft. Uh, and the earliest witch hunts, which really appears at the very end of the Middle Ages in the in the 15th century, um, and then I guess I guess most basically, well, initially, then I thought I am done with this and I'm going to go on and do some other things, but that that didn't work out. I got pulled back in somehow, um, and I think in general, uh, I I realized I had gotten uh, a little bit too narrow, focusing in on just witchcraft, on just that particular dynamic. Um, and that's actually, to speak historiographically for a second, that's, that's something that really shapes this field. You get into the field of magic, per se, uh, broadly speaking, but then it's witchcraft studies mm. that are really dominant. And there's tons of books produced, um, so forth and so on. But. Uh, where where the movement is now is really the broader movement is to break away from that Uh, either chronologically by people starting to research magic in the modern period or uh, periods where you wouldn't normally think of it as operating or in the medieval and the early modern looking for other avenues, other ways of thinking about the topic and as I started to think in those terms um, that's how I came on superstition. Superstition as a category as a, as a term that gets thrown around by medieval writers, is, uh, I, I would say, the broadest sort of term. Far broader than witchcraft, far broader even than magic. Uh, this is the term that medieval authors are using to describe things that we would think of as, as magical and hocus pocusy and so forth and so on in the broadest possible sense. And so I wanted to look at what would emerge and what might stay the same and what might be different about sort of the, the narratives we already know, if you look at this category uh, that is that is more their category uh, than our category, or is at least uh, as much their category as our category. We're not losing it on them. So that's how, um, that's how I got to this particular book.
1: Very interesting. Uh, so it, having said all of that then, can you tell us what... <laughs> Of course, this is the you know, $24,000 question or whatever. But what, what, what was superstition in the late Middle Ages? Can you give us some examples and talk to us a little bit about how the, the category of, of superstition was being constructed in, over those couple of centuries, but also the sorts of influences that were being brought to bear on the category of superstition and the way that superstition itself and how people thought about it and what sorts of things they attributed uh, to the superstitious... How were those things in flux in the moment that you're, that you're so interested in here?
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, most, basically speaking, superstition would, could be and, and was used to describe almost anything that a, a Christian writer or religious authority of some kind would view as improper religion. Uh, so magical practices were superstitious. Um, heresies could be labeled as superstitious as well, though that isn't the type of superstition I really. You know, I don't include that in my catalog of superstition in this book. Uh, um, Judaism and and Islam were superstitious, so that's in the broadest sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the what they're really mostly when they use superstition the, uh, are, for the most part, practices that we would think of. Uh, in terms of magic, or at least invoking and trying to utilize a non-natural, a preternatural, or a supernatural source of power in some way. In terms of specific examples of what these practices could be, uh, they, they cross an enormous spectrum. Um, very, uh, very rigorous, uh, elite, learned practices of uh, highly complicated, ritualized, demonic invocations demonic magic uh, were absolutely considered superstitious uh, so were common spells and charms things you know people would brief phrases people would mutter over the sick uh, to to heal them or over a cow to make it uh, you know, give better milk uh, or to protect a valuable animal from harm or to protect protect someone from sickness or disease Um... Use of uh, use of natural items, uh, stones, herbs, plants of various kinds. Uh, if you used them in what was judged to be uh, somehow an improper way, with improper understanding, that veered off into superstition. So again, for for a fever, you'd gather uh, a person would gather uh, certain herbs. That could be fine in and of itself. That might be a, a completely what even medieval people would consider a a, a natural uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. But if someone gathered those herbs uh, on a specific night, Ah. uh, under the full moon, while saying particular words, even if those words were the words of a Christian prayer, uh, this could often raise suspicions that there's something improper here going on. So all of these things could be superstitious. Um, Again, back to the other end of the spectrum, learned, uh, highly complicated, really scientific astrology uh, could be superstitious um, astrology was was very much a science in the middle ages but if you exceeded what were perceived to be the bounds of appropriate astrological knowledge and practice uh, then that was superstitious too uh, so that that really is why the book the subtitle is about the boundaries of superstition because it's about where where people in authority in one sense or another uh, are are trying to draw boundaries and say this is superstitious that is that is not and one of the maybe the overarching conclusion of the book is that it was incredibly hard for medieval authorities to find boundaries that they could agree upon, feel comfortable with um, and really in any way effectively enforce uh, you you get the impression that they were just, Flummoxing around trying to trying to control something that they they feared could become very very dangerous, uh, but they had very little sense of of where really they wanted to they as a group uh, draw hard and fast lines.
1: Yes, exactly. That's one of the things that comes through again and again in in the book. And I, I think that one of the most fascinating aspects of the topic is the is that superstition, like not not a few other categories that we sort of invoke and that have been invoked historically, I feel sometimes like sand going through your fingers. You know, as soon as you sort of get a feel of it, it's already slipping away. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, magic is that way. In some ways, science is that way. In some ways, religion is that way. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about your work and, and the work of some other scholars who maybe we can, we can reference at some point uh, is, the, is, is that when you start writing about superstition or thinking about superstition, uh, you're 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 standing in the midst of all of these co- very complicated um, categories, and and the evolution and historicity of these very complicated cat- categories. Um, I wonder if you know broadly, let's just say um, popularly, I think there's an understanding. I mean, I think there's a persistent understanding of the middle of the Middle Ages as sort of uniformly superstitious. Uh, right. I mean, you know this better than anybody uh, um, how, how, in, how can a modern historian, let's say Or a, or a, a reader whose knowledge is, is principally of, of, of the more recent past I mean, I, I am such a person, I'm a scholar of the 20th century in Europe uh, But how can a person um, reading your work Who wants to get a more nuanced view of the Middle Ages And its intellectual life and its culture uh, what what kinds of um, how does your work help us revise this sense that, that, that the Middle Ages were uni- you know uniformly saturated with superstition?
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, of course, that comes really from uh, uh, early modern and really Enlightenment uh, era era discourse uh, establishing. Really, it's it's, it's again just uh, drawing the boundaries of superstition, but in a different place. What they were intent on doing is drawing. Uh, boundaries around what they wanted to label as superstitious, um, really as, as in some cases quite directly as everything that was medieval uh, you know, the, the the notion of a medieval church that is uh, you know, uh, befuddled by religion and therefore incredibly repressive and so forth, this is what the Enlightenment wanted to distance very consciously right. European modernity from uh, so yeah, they just they just took this term and said, well, everything in the su- everything in the Middle Ages is superstition, and that's the the wonderful thing is in what in some way that's what the Middle Ages did too at the very beginning of the medieval period, or really I should say, at the very beginning of the Christian period. Uh, superstition uh, superstition even in the Latin superstitio, it's it's not a medieval term; it's a Roman term. The concept goes even farther back than that, obviously. Uh, but what Early Christian authors, did the Romans had their own understanding of superstition and, and what was improper and uninformed and excessive and so forth? Uh, Christian authors, and Christianity was a superstition to them. Christians yes. came around and said, clearly we're not superstitious, therefore the thing we are not must be superstitious, and it must be completely superstitious. Uh, all of pagan antiquity, all pagan practices, all pagan deities, all pagan cults, are uniformly superstitious because we understand that they are all actually worshiping Christian demons. They don't realize it, but we know they are. So we can brand them all as completely superstitious. So the exact thing that got done to the Middle Ages, in a sense, uh, the Middle Ages did to the period that preceded them. So this is just a continuation of the dynamic, a dynamic, uh, that superstition gets employed to to create. Um, and then once you understand that, uh, I think then, then you're drawn into this world of how medieval thinkers actually did deploy superstition, how then they re-cut up, redivided the the, the superstition pie in a way um, and created categories of uh, legitimate practices, practices that they, that they um, obviously absolutely tolerated, anything that they deemed to be Christian religion, of course, um, also anything they deemed to be proper science, then actually a whole, a whole bracket of, of practices and beliefs and so forth that they were not really willing to condemn entirely. They were somewhat concerned about, they were uncertain as to whether they were proper, but they, the, the notion of the Middle Ages as this just completely repressive period uh, is also uh, basically a modern creation and a modern projection backwards. Uh, there was a category, uh, 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 an area on the spectrum, I should say, of uh, practices where authorities sort of threw up their hands and said we're not terribly comfortable, but we don't see enough to fully condemn. And then there are the category, then there are the the practices, the beliefs uh, that they were for the most part. Uh, uh, there are obviously the, what the book is about is these debates among them. Uh, but there are these categories that they're they're fairly uniformly uh, condemning anything they feel gets involved into uh, interactions with demons automatically off the board, automatically superstitious in a way that cannot be tolerated, um, and so forth.
1: Interesting. Do you Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what some of those, tell, maybe you could say something specifically about what some of those practices were that authorities, church authorities, ecclesiastical authorities were particularly alarmed by, and then maybe talk about some of those practices that, were so spongy in a way that no one could decide. They, they, As you said, people weren't comfortable with them necessarily, but they weren't prepared to condemn them either. Can you give us some examples of these?
0: Sure. Um, I would say probably the, the areas where authorities are most comfortable condemning would be on the uh, sort of area of elite practices, learned practices. If for no other reason than these are the areas that they, as religious authorities, are most familiar with. Uh, So there is is widely practiced um, complex ritualized demonic invocation, demonic magic in the Middle Ages, necromancy, uh, that is mostly practiced, well, almost exclusively practiced by by clerics, because you have to be able to read Latin, uh, and you have to be able to perform rituals in Latin uh, to to engage in that type of magic. Um, And Really, those, those rites and so forth, uh, some of them were quite explicitly demonic. The people who practiced them would have been very, I don't know if I should say they'd be very comfortable saying, but they would admit, if pressed, mm-hmm. yes, I am summoning a demon. The trick for them as practitioners is that they thought, they believed, they were able to convince themselves, that by their, by their various rites and rituals, they would be able to control that demonic power. And what authorities, church authorities, came in and said was, "Well, no, obviously you cannot. Obviously, what you're doing is you're worshiping demons. You're making pacts with demons, uh, whether you realize it or not. A demonic pact can be entirely tacit. You may not know you're in one, but you are." Uh, so those are quite explicit practices that that you know, raise all sorts of concerns. Uh, then what happens is in this this vast world of of common practices, ordinary, everyday. Uh, you know, like I say, healing charms, protective spells um infinite numbers of of methods of of divination, you know who am I going to marry? Is the weather going to be good next week? Mm. at the crops now, these sorts of things uh, sort of a, a vast array of of just daily practices that are going on all across Europe in infinite forms but in in some particular categories uh these are the things that really, I think, raise doubts in church authorities' minds. What they intellectually fear is that, is that demons are lurking behind all of this stuff, too. Um, ultimately, uh, the, the worry is that demonic forces are going to be coming in, demonic corruption is going to be invoked somehow. But in fact, a lot of these practices are are mostly, if not entirely christian I mean, The things people are saying... Are Christian prayers or fragments of Christian prayers? Um, you know they're they're writing bits of Bible verse or they're getting somebody to write a bit of Bible verse for them, uh, and they're laying it on the the forehead of a sick person, of a person with fever. Uh, they're giving holy water to a person uh, with a toothache to gargle. Um, so you know, they think of themselves uh, as doing something entirely in accord with their religion and with with accessing divine power, and authorities aren't entirely sure that they're not hmm. uh, but they still have this concern that they might not be that they might be messing things up somehow. Um, yeah it, it becomes a matter of, of educa- concern over you know education as well. Elite practitioners who are educated, uh, they raise their own type of concerns, but at least uh, the authorities, the critics of superstition who are writing against them tend to tend to assume well, they at least know what they're doing they must know what they're doing is wrong. With this category of common practice, uh, the concern is these people, have, they don't really know what they're doing is wrong, and we're not actually entirely sure if it is wrong, but if it is wrong, and this is, this is a great difference from the modern world, if it is wrong, if someone performs a superstitious action that happens to allow uh, a demon to, to enter the equation, then that's a horrible and, a, and, and unallowable corruption. Whereas in the modern world, obviously, we just say, oh, you know, if you believe a Black cat is bad luck. So what? Right. You know, we may think that's silly or whatever, but we don't get all worked up over it. That's why medieval authorities could could and did get very worked up over
1: this. Yes, we do have our 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 ideas. Uh, of, uh, you know, there are certainly ideas of our own time that people get worked up about, but uh, black cats aren't aren't really one of them. Although I must say that I mean, this may interest you. I don't know. Uh, I I was t- my we have a black cat, and I was told. Uh, um, by our veterinarian, not to let our cat go out on Halloween uh, because things might happen to our cat. I was kind of amazed by that. So, uh, anyway, <laughs> I can't imagine. yeah. So I don't know. Um, Other people are doing that
0: because they actually think it's a little demon in disguise, or because they're just kids on Halloween,
1: right? Uh, uh, exactly. That's right. And it's and the, yes, your point is very well taken. Absolutely. What was it about? I mean, there, some some a part of your book has to do with the fact that um. In, in your estimation, this seems to have been a period of, um, that was particularly unsettled in certain ways, uh, uh, where superstition was concerned, and yeah. there was increased vigilance, so that something was prompting, or a, a various circumstances were prompting increased vigilance concerning superstition. Can you talk about that?
0: Sure. Um, I would say, uh, in general, and, and to speak in uh, enormously sweeping terms that, that needless to say, uh, uh, sweep under the carpet a lot of, a lot of things, um, what you have in the very early medieval period is this uh, notion of, of uh, the, using the category of superstition uh, to oppose paganism. The obvious superstition in the world is paganism to them. And it's in, in the early medieval centuries still a very active type of paganism. So the, the target becomes relatively obvious. Then what happens over the medieval centuries, uh, Europe becomes fairly thoroughly Christianized. Uh, you know There are there are heretical groups. There are small pockets of Jewish communities. Um, there's there's Islam out there at the at the fringes of the Christian world, uh, but but within Europe, basically people are Christian. Uh, concern over superstition or a discourse about superstition continues. I should say, uh, it, it becomes fairly uh, fairly theoretical, fairly abstract um, for some time period, and then in about the twelfth. The thirteenth, 14th and 15th centuries then uh, you start to see a more practical concern growing and I think this is for two reasons um, at, uh, at an intellectual level Christian theology we're in the, we're in the world of scholasticism uh, mm. scholasticism and scholastic systems are refining themselves, universities are appearing in Europe and so uh, at one level intellectual authorities are starting to get, get more detailed again about uh, almost any intellectual subject you could pick, superstition is one of them. So the authorities, the intellectuals that uh, start to think about superstition, that are thinking about superstition, uh, start to do it in more detailed, more complex, more sophisticated ways again. Uh, The other thing that's happening is that uh, the church is really, in the high medieval centuries, uh, starting to gear up its pastoral activity. Uh, The the great watershed here that almost everybody who works in sort of pastoral history uh, talks about is the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. uh, Issues a whole raft of uh, of decrees about uh, how religion needs to get practiced on the ground, basically. How people need to think about and engage with their Christianity. Uh, One of the major ones is that people now are required to go to confession on a yearly basis. So this gives a mechanism whereby uh, bishops but also all the way down to parish priests there are now mechanisms where they are inquiring more into a sort of lived religion. And I I think it's just the fact that they're finding out more. They're learning more about the things that their parishioners are doing. Um, Things like, you know, well, I, I, my cow was sick. I said this prayer over the cow uh, and I picked some herbs and I, I, I did that. And the other thing, Uh, surely that's okay. Father. And, and a confessor might be taken aback by that. Uh, And, and, if it gets reported up the line, um, it could cause you know it could cause concern. Um, we have one of the detriments of being a medieval historian is you, you don't have nearly the number of specific cases you'd really like. But there's one example I touch on uh, several times in the book because it, it's such a good example. Uh, there's this woman in uh, a little village in the Rhineland in Germany. Her child has hurt his hand or his finger. The source says in some way. She clearly knows a healing practice of some kind, but she's worried about it. She's heard something from her local, you know, her local parish priest or a preacher who came through her town, and she's a little bit concerned. So she goes around asking her confessor, so forth and so on. Can I do this thing? And she finally, she clearly is intent on finding the answer she wants. She finally goes to a, a neighboring town of the way and finds a confessor to say, "Yeah, that's fine." uh That sounds great as long as you as long you 're making sure that you 're not somehow invoking a demon when you do that, by all means, go ahead and do that thing, and he then is actually the one who gets uh his higher ups find out about him and what he 's been telling people is okay to do, and they haul him into court. We have no idea whatever happened to the woman. she probably went back to her town, hopefully healed her her young boy, and all was well. He got hauled into court, and so we have a record of of that practice
1: yes. Uh, it's the, the. I think that's such a particularly interesting story, and I and I and I also think the what you were describing a moment ago about um, priests encountering uh, the practices of, of people uh, um, more and more frequently. How you know they're sort of learning about uh, learning about the people amongst whom they're living in a new in a new way, and that and that that's prompting all kinds of questions and and concerns really interesting I mean one of the one of the you, you you were talking about court records and I was thinking about I was thinking ahead in the you know ahead to the um, to one of your later chapters which deals with witchcraft and the the famous witch hunters manual um, if that's the right way to put it I you, you'll correct me about that I hope um, but the malleus Maleficarum was written within the period that you study
0: yeah
1: uh, within the period that's covered excuse me within the period that's covered by the book so in the very in the very uh, latter decades of the of the 15th century, excuse me, of the, yes, of the 15th century, yeah. no? The, the Malleus was written then. Yeah. Um, t- can you tell us, because I think some people, particularly people who are non-specialists of your period, will be interested, uh, of course, this is not the period. The period that you're interested in is not the period of the witch hunt. That comes quite a lot later. Mm-hmm. Um, but but nonetheless, there are aspects, particularly in this chapter that I that I was just mentioning, uh, and and the chapter that, that deals with... Uh, uh, among other things, the malleus. Um, can you say something about the connection between what you're interested in and witchcraft? It's also something that you alluded to earlier that you know that witchcraft and and then later um, the study of of the witch hunt have really dominated the topic of magic and superstition. Though there's a lot more to be known as your book so so clearly reveals. But I wonder if you could say something about the relationship between those things because I think that's something that would interest people.
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um... The, well, the, the Malis Maleficarum, it absolutely, I would say, is a witch-hunting manual. Um, probably the, the first real uh, witch-hunting manual. Uh, other, other works uh, that deal with witchcraft before it are, are not quite witch-hunters' guides, at the very least. But, um, yeah, the, the idea of diabolical witchcraft, the, the idea of witches acting in concert, acting as a group, acting under the really direct... Uh, sort of leadership of of Satan or of a demon, of witches gathering at a Sabbath, uh, um, more typically called a synagogue of witches actually in the 15th century, but the idea of a witch's Sabbath, a group coming together, uh, worshipping a demon, taking instruction, and then going out into the world to work uh, their harmful magic. uh, This starts to appear in the 15th century, and this is the idea of witchcraft, uh, conspiratorial, group-centered witchcraft, That will be at the basis of the major witch hunts that are in the early modern period to come. Uh, In terms of the relationship between witchcraft and and superstition, witchcraft is a superstition. Uh, So witchcraft, you could say, is a subset. All witchcraft is superstitious. Not all superstitions are necessarily witchcraft. Mm. Um, My my idea is is that, to some extent, it seems to me that witchcraft, the idea of uh, again, this, this particular stereotype of intensely diabolical, conspiratorial uh, uh, groups of witches actually emerges, it helps to solve some of the dilemmas that superstition and examining superstition had been raising. Uh, once you convince yourself that there are people in the world like witches and that witchcraft means you know, not just a woman on her own muttering a spell somewhere. Uh, here it would be to kill a cow, let's say, um, but that it means you know groups gathering together, meeting with each other. Now there becomes more evidence in a sense, even though the whole construct of the Sabbath is imaginary. Mm. It becomes evidence. You can you can get people to confess to it, and of course you can use torture to do that, or, or the threat of torture at the very least. Um, and then you have your evidence. Now there's no doubt. There's no doubt that what these people are doing, they can't argue it might be good. You've confessed to me that you've gathered in a group and you've worshipped a demon. That obviously is what I understand to be superstitious, so I'm comfortable now categorizing you in a certain way. Yes. Uh, so that's that's sort of the most obvious relationship, and I would say that's the relationship that, that even scholars have thought about. Uh, scholars who look at superstition in the Middle Ages, scholars who look at the beginnings of witchcraft, they see okay, witchcraft is emerging out of this broader area of concern. What then becomes interesting to me uh, um, as I thought about it more and what I really try to do in that last chapter of the book, I having already worked on witchcraft myself, I certainly didn't want to just rehash witchcraft yet again. but it suddenly struck me in these works, in these proto-witch hunting manuals and in the case of something like the Malleus, a, a really full-blown witch hunting manual, you do have discussions of other types of superstitious practices. Mostly in the sense of things people might be doing to protect themselves from witchcraft. Spells, charms, natural herbs and unguents and so forth that they might think will protect them or their livestock or their children or whatever from attack by these witches. And the fascinating thing is that for the most part, these authorities who are starting to write on now witchcraft in the 15th century and getting obviously very concerned about it actually become I would say in the, in the scope of things, somewhat lenient toward mm. this other type of superstition. The, mm. the basic dynamic as I describe it is it seems to be well, at least it's not witchcraft. Whatever else they may be doing doesn't applies sort of to the level of witchcraft and since we absolutely want to combat witchcraft, we, may, we will create a, a what seems to be a strange little space for this. Now, mm. of course I'm, I'm working entirely with these manuals, uh, with these, with these uh, sort of theoretical intellectual works. A question would be how much of this would get reflected in actual trials. Um, but as I say in the book, uh, people do certainly work on which trials in the Middle Ages, but the trial records are so much less than what we have for the early modern period. Uh, you, know, you can't do the sort of surveying that we could do in the early modern period. Um, nevertheless, you find in in this literature, you know uh, Heinrich Kramer, uh, the, the the feared author of the yes. Malleus, arm himself uh, at one point says, well, you know, the, uh, I've encountered these women. He says he's encountered them, whether they're real or not, or just a just a just a uh, a device he's using. He says I've encountered these women when they think their uh, cow has been bewitched. They perform this spell over it, and I think the spell it, it explicitly calls on the power of the devil uh, to to identify get the cow, in essence, to identify what witch has bewitched it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but at least it's not witchcraft. Right. So, you know, they may they may be brushing against, against demonic magic. I wouldn't say it's great. I'd much rather they, you know, try to use a nice sacrament of the church or, or just, just kneel down and pray or something. Uh, but in the grand su- sweep of things, at least it's not witchcraft, which is a remarkable thing for someone of his reputation to be
1: saying. Yeah, I, I have to agree. That's fascinating, too. I wonder if, um, you know, a lot of times... Uh, well when, when we you, you conducted an enormous amount of research to write this book, you read an enormous number of texts, you had ideas about what they would contain before you read them, and many of them you had probably read before, and then you read them again with new eyes and you learned new things. Um, all of those things happen to us when' we're, when we 're doing research uh, about the past. I wonder if you could tell us because I think it would be interesting for 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 our listeners and, and certainly very interesting for me uh, if you could tell us what you thought were maybe the most surprising things, or the things that made you, or the one, whatever you want to do, the most surprising thing that you, that you discovered when you were doing the research for this book, or the most surprising conclusion that you felt you came to as a result of the research that you did?
0: Sure. Um, I, I can think of uh, several, actually. Um, one of them would be absolutely... Um, uh, what I found uh, in the witchcraft literature, very much, as you say, again, when I went back to it with now new eyes, looking at it from a different perspective, uh, I suddenly saw, well, that actually, there's, there's this sort of tone of toleration mm. for certain types of practices. And that that struck me and that fascinated me and, and, and certainly surprised me. Um, the, other, uh, the other aspect that uh, always surprised me as I was working through the sources was when you come across uh, either an author who is himself very tolerant and there are a handful uh, and they make wonderful counterpoints uh, so they're interspersed throughout the book but there are these uh, a few authors who really are just quite uh, quite tolerant they, they basically they acknowledge the theoretical framework they say yes if anything gets into the realm of a demonic that's obviously horrible um, but I'm much more inclined to err uh, and uh, on on not on the side of caution, on the side of liberality, and allow people who I think are basically doing okay Christian practices to continue to perform them, even if I think as an educated clergyman that they actually have no effect. Mm. At least they're doing no harm. It is, in fact, what I would describe, what struck me the first several times I would read these things, as a very modern, quote-unquote, attitude towards superstition. We may think it's silly, we may not think it has any real effect, but we don't. It's not doing any harm, so that's fine. Let them keep doing it. Uh, that was certainly a, a, a pleasant surprise. Um, and then uh, another major area of surprise. Uh, we've, we've mentioned a little bit how uh, science also comes into this. Superstition exists at the intersection of religion, but also of science, um, and a whole category of superstitious practice that I realized I had to get into the book once I started into the research. Was the arguments over superstitious uh, astrology, um, and you know, yes, yes. Canada, uh, And an elite practice. Well, ordinary people can prognosticate by the stars too, but in the Middle Ages, astronomy is an uh, astrology is an elite practice. Um, you know, it takes place at universities. Uh, it is in many ways a legitimated science, but then there are these improper forms of it or excessive uses of it. Um that are deemed to be superstitious and there actually again, in a lot of cases, a lot of the arguments that you get from critics are when an astrologer veers outside of legitimate science natural philosophy and gets into a superstitious aspect of his craft, what we really are concerned about are that demons are entering in somehow corrupting the process um, and so that leads back to sort of a what might be called a standard, a sort of a religious criticism of superstition. But there are also uh, a few highly placed figures, intellectual figures, um, at mainly at the University of Paris in the 14th century, who dispense with that altogether. They say, yes, there are certainly, uh, there are certainly superstitious aspects to astronomi- astrology. I'm, mis- I'm mixing up my terminology, by the way, because medieval authors constantly just go back and forth. They say astronomy, they say astrology. It's yes. all... It's all very confusing uh, in terms of their use of terminologies. Um, But there are a few authors who say, yes, uh, we absolutely think there are excessive and improper and uninformed uh, and therefore superstitious components to astrology, but not ones that particularly involve demons. Uh, And that struck me again uh, to talk about how, you know, people imagine there's this tremendous divide between the Middle Ages and the modern period in so many ways there are. But that was a moment where I thought, well then, that is in fact how uh, you know the, the modern conception of superstition again gets formulated. It's not, uh, it's not something that is a religious error. It's an error in science. You're, mm-hmm. you're not understanding the operations of, of the physical universe. You're not understanding physics properly. Yes. Uh, and that is what makes you superstitious. So those I would say would be uh, the three big categories of superstition. Surprise!
1: Yeah, right. Right. yeah, Search. absolutely. I think that I think that um, I think that those those particular points that you made will be really surprising to to people who read the book too, uh, and 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 will be you know I think that uh, anyone who reads the book will be enriched, particularly people I would say again you know who who aren't specialists in in in, in your in your time period. Um, I think that all of those things will will strike them as quite. Um, not exactly what they brought when brought to the book when they started reading it and and cer- certainly I learned a great deal um, and enjoyed reading your book very much. I wonder if uh we you know're we 've impinged on your time enough now I think and and you've and you 've been so generous with us and shared your time with us uh, I wonder if we could just maybe ask you a couple of last questions uh, and, and then and then we 'll let you go because we know you have Thousands of books to read and lots of other things to write. So, and we'll be excited to hear what you're going to be working on next. And that's what I wanted to ask you if you could maybe tell us a little bit about what you're working on now, and if it's related to this work, great. And if if it's a completely, you know, if it's a, if it's a departure for you, that that's great too. We'd love to hear about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, it, it the the nascent next big project um, is going to be ultimately a departure, although I'm I'm working to make it more of a transition. Uh I've gotten in the course of working on superstition here, I've gotten uh really quite interested in uh the idea of false religion and and religious falsity in the Middle Ages. Obviously a huge topic. Uh you know, what uh what are the categories of concern? Where where are medieval authorities and at various points in time within the Middle Ages, what are they categorizing as false religion that is of concern to them at that moment? Uh, this is this is as I say really a, a transition from the superstition topic because superstition is itself uh, well one aspect of it is that it's false religion wrong religion you're believing things wrongly you're getting your theology wrong you're understanding the operations of divine um, and demonic power in the world in an improper way and you're engaging with them in improper ways mm-hmm. uh, so I'm I'm transitioning from just superstition sort of as I went from magic I said well I wanted to get broader than that I'll take on this topic of superstition uh, now I've just gone completely insane and I've decided from superstition I want to take on the idea of just false religion what does that mean in the middle
1: ages yeah huge topic so yeah <laughs> whether and, and when you say when you say the middle ages this time are you can you tell it can you give us a time frame will you be again dealing with the late middle ages
0: this is uh, going to push uh, earlier I'm, I'm not so so foolish as to try to make it cover the entirety of the Middle Ages, all the way from say, you know, four hundred on up. Uh, but this time, I think I'm going to be basically covering from about one thousand to fifteen hundred. Uh, I'm going to. I'm my 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 um, uh, bookends are going to be the uh, the Gregorian Reform in the eleventh uh, century, and then up to the Reformation, um, because the Reformation. Uh, <laughs> In some ways, I actually don't think changes all that much, but adds so much to how these topics get talked about uh, and changes the context. It doesn't change the, the essential structures of the ideas, but it changes the context in which they get framed so dramatically that it's an obvious place to stop. So, yeah, a mere, a mere 500 years. <laughs> just, um, and inevitably, I'll find out that I've already found out that, obviously, what I, I also have to go back to Augustine because, of course, everything that every... A theologian says about uh, lying and falsity and hypocrisy in the Middle Ages comes from Augustine. So I have to go back to the four hundreds anyway.
1: Anyway, right? (laughs) Absolutely, right? Uh, Do you? uh, So you know, here's here's what here's what everybody really wants to know now, Michael. At the conclusion of your wonderful talk, Uh, what are your superstitions? (laughs) 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 Come on, you must have one. I have actually.
0: Uh, I try, I think because of this project, I try really hard not to be superstitious. Uh-huh. There is also an anecdote I mentioned in this book in in the uh, student union here on my campus. Yes. There's this zodiac that no one is supposed to step on uh, embedded in the floor, and I deliberately step on that thing <laughs> every time I walk over it.
1: But you well, don't I, consider that a superstition.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, I, but I will tell you this. One, one thing that I, I do, I just have to admit to it. Uh, If I'm in my car and I see a car, uh, I pass a car that's broken down by the side of the road. I've done this for years. Uh, I I knock on quote-unquote wood. Of course, there's not a speck of wood in my car, but I knock on some piece of plastic in my car. I do that motion. I don't even know how I started doing that, but it is so automatic. And if I tried to stop myself from doing that, I think I would actually feel very strange. Uh, and, And actually would probably start to think, well, now what's going to happen? What have I? What have I done by breaking this? Uh, for me, somehow, it's the length of time I've been performing this ritual. Um, what will happen? So I, I will cop to that superstition. <laughs> okay. whether, it's, whether it's interesting or not, I don't know.
1: It's very interesting, and our talk was very interesting. And I want to I want to thank you, Michael D. Bailey, for for spending uh, you know a good bit of time, a good bit of your life with us today. It was really really enjoyable. Your book is called Fearful Spirits: Reason Follies, the Boundaries of Superstition in Late Medieval Europe published just this year by Cornell University Press. And it was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much.